Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I am Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast, the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about what we call climate change, the climate crisis, global warming, our carbon footprints, our collective and personal carbon footprints. But in this, in this show, we, we focus on the emotional aspects of, of climate. And um, today we're really honored to have a guest that I have known um, of and followed for many years. I'm Rosemary Randall, but most people call me Ro, which is the name I've had since childhood. And Ro, welcome. Ro's coming in from Cambridge in the UK. Um, and again, as you know, with our podcast, this is Thomas and I'm in Portland, Oregon, USA. So I'm just starting my day, getting my daughter off to school and sitting down to, to chat and Panu is toward the end of his evening in Finland and Ro's toward the end of her day late afternoon in the UK. I became familiar with, with Roe in around 2008 when I was working on the Eco-Psychology Journal. We were helping to get this academic journal off the ground, and she was one of the people that we approached uh, to publish a paper, and she, she wrote a very uh, influential paper on climate change and grief. One of the first papers to really address people's grief uh, about their their carbon footprint and their grief about their own involvement in climate change. Um, and that kind of set a tone for a lot of what we know as climate psychology and climate therapy now. So it's really honored to, I'm really honored to have Ro here and just kind of chat about what she's doing now and some of her insights. Uh, and I, I know Panu has also followed Ro's work. Uh, Panu, do you want to get us started with the discussion today? Warmly welcome, Ro. Very good to see you. And we've been talking over, over the years, and your work has been an inspiration for me since 2013. So, or not, not as long as for Thomas, but still for many, many, many years. But um, would you like to st start, Ro, by go, going back a bit? Uh, we've never talked in detail about how you got involved uh, with climate psychology and climate emotions at the first place. Place. Would you like to share something about that background? Well, I'm a psychotherapist, and so that's where the interest in psychology and emotion comes from, along with all the things that took me into that career in the first place. But when I think about what first made me concerned about environment, I think back to a conversation with a cousin of mine from when I was about 19 or 20, and he was visiting from the States. 
his family had emigrated. My father's brother had emigrated to the States just after the Second World War. And he said to me, do you know what ecology is? Mm. And I said, well, kind of. But I didn't know what he knew. And I hadn't read Rachel Carson, and he had. And he was part of the burgeoning environmental movement in the United States. And that was when I began to think and I began to connect. And I began to value in a different way a lot of the childhood experiences that I'd had with my parents growing up, being in wild places, camping, being outside, Mm -hmm. being connected to the natural world that supports us. And for me, that was the beginning of joining to other concerns I had, which also have strong roots in my family background, but values to do with socialism, values to do with feminism. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was that conversation with Michael, my cousin, which brought into my life something which hadn't been there before, the idea that our relationship to the natural world was also political. Mm and cultural, and a source for great concern mm-hmm. back, back then. So it's something that has run through my adult life, sometimes more strongly, sometimes more weakly. Mm. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. And often in this podcast, we talking, talked about environmental identity and people's life paths and trajectories and that's of course something that is studied in environmental education research and the connections between psychology and education are here very very close and awakenings and epiphanies are something which may happen for many people and I hear you sharing a story of that one one kind of that and later on I know that you also did some research among climate activists your, yourself and 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 thought about various uh, phases that people may go through uh, in in these ch- journeys and uh, but how did it then go with combining the uh, official work that you are doing with psychology and therapy and environmental and climate concerns so when, when do you con- consider that that kind of work work started for you i think for a long time they were quite separate i practiced in private practice as a psychotherapist i worked as a counselor in the university mm-hmm. and i lived a i suppose a low impact kind of life and mm-hmm. For many years, I think that was about it. I had lots of friends from the early days of the environmental movement, from time a time when I was on the editorial collective of a magazine called Undercurrents in the 1970s, and I and I retained some of that, some of those connections. But I think those two strands of my life were actually quite separate until the until the 2000s when the news about climate began to hit me much more. And I began to think about it. And I began to write about it. And I began to wonder why when other professions seemed to be waking up to the climate crisis, psychotherapy wasn't. And I wrote a paper which was published in 2005, which I called A New Climate for Psychotherapy, because I wanted psychotherapists to wake up. I wanted to say, 
Mm-hmm. Come mm-hmm. on, guys. We should be concerned too. There are groups with names like Historians for Climate, uh, concerned about climate change. Uh-huh. Where are the therapists? Yeah. But the curious thing was that um, my colleagues didn't really respond very well um, in my immediate environment or even particularly more widely. But I went to a conference at the Center for Alternative Technology that year in 2005. I'd got back in touch with some of my old friends from the environmental movement. And I presented a version of this paper, which was very brief, but in which I described the process of disavowal, where people know with one part of themselves exactly what's going on. And with another part of themselves, they just carry on as usual. That splitting of the mind that allows that was a revelation to many of the Mm -hmm. people I was speaking to. And Mm -hmm. so I discovered that the people who were really interested weren't my therapeutic colleagues, but they were the people in the burgeoning climate movement in the UK that I was now now meeting. Mm -hmm. And that set me on a different different path, along with another of those epiphany moments that Panu was was talking Mm -hmm. about, because Mm -hmm. my son, who at that point was 20, 21, had fetched up working at the Centre for Alternative Technology. And... um, we went out on a walk, and I've told this story many times, but we went out on a walk, and he was lecturing me about carbon emissions and carbon footprints. And I was like, what? <laughs> Who are you talking to? I know all this. But mm-hmm. of course, I didn't. And he knew much more than I did. And that was the point at which I realized the enormous difference between an average UK footprint, which was then thought to be a 10-tonne footprint, and a sustainable footprint, which was one, two tonnes. And I didn't want to believe it. I found myself in this process of disavowal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Temporarily. But there I was. And it was another of those epiphanies where you think, what I'm doing is not enough. I have to take this more seriously. I have to change direction. And that was when I brought climate and psychotherapy together, both in my own mind and in my, in my own life. Mm. Mm. That's really great, Ro. I mean, it's uh, just tracking along with this. Um, and I think for the listeners, um, as we've talked about be- before, there's, a, there's sort of a timeline of climate change if we line up all the listeners in a row from the elders to the young people the elders can go back and find these moments where climate entered into their life or their awareness of climate change changed since a rose exam you know just uh, giving some great examples of that for young people they they've always known climate change it's always been a, a specter in the back of their minds from birth but uh, there's a lot of um, people people that some of the listeners uh, have been doing this work for a while and their environmental journey is long and it does go back to sort of pre pre inconvenient truth uh, times pre climate when climate change wasn't the pressing issue it was more of a general eco is that ecological awakening that 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 Roe talked about so it's just that's just really helpful and then of course the other piece that's I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea of a carbon footprint calculator 
which is a which is a thing thing that was created inadvertently by you know well it's been it was a it was sort of a, a construct in in research and sustainability but it was popularized as, as most people now know from british petroleum and their beyond petroleum advertising campaign so they kind of inadvertently brought this into the public um i think partly to you know as we know to distract from their own role in the climate crisis and to and to put it on people so there's there's this whole dilemma of um, us taking responsibility, but also being blamed personally for things that are well beyond our control. And then that, of course, I think is where the grief comes in. I mean, I've been thinking, you know, which came first, the calculator or the grief, right? But it seems to me, Ro, that when you started, and I could really see you going around, who are, you know, who are these far out people going around to these meetings with carbon calculators and having people talk about them but as soon as people did it seems to me it opened up to the to the feelings and to the grief and to the powerlessness and the climate hostage um, situation that people are in and is that how you got into the grief work then because the, the the calculators brought people's grief out yes it was what my son was working on at that time with his colleagues was a carbon calculator um mm -hmm. and i think the recent publicity about BP's role in this, I think, has sometimes been slightly confusing because I think for me it goes, the carbon footprinting really goes back into the work of Mathis, um, I can never get his name right, Wackernagel. Um, yeah, uh, Wackernagel, yeah. And the, ecolo the ecological footprint. And I think that it takes you, this whole debate takes you into the question of how we look at this and the need to adopt a systems understanding, the need to look at this from a psychosocial perspective where we, we don't give up personal responsibility, but we do um, also take account of the complex systems that make us complicit in it. And where I began was with a carbon footprint calculator. We used to go around in Cambridge, where I live, to all kinds of public events with a calculator. We would offer to calculate people's carbon footprints. And what I did was I tried to train people in the use of this so that we weren't just asking people about the numbers. We were asking people how they felt because when you ask people about the areas of carbon footprint, your home energy, your travel, the food that you eat, and the money that you spend, you're delving intimately into people's experience. And when people look at the impact of what feels like an ordinary life, it's a very upsetting experience. And that took me very rapidly into the need to support people in talking about how serious climate change was and how much it meant that life had life has to change because however you tot it up if you want to live in a world that has any form of equity and justice in it then the lives of those of us in what i call the overdeveloped countries have to mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. and I think that's a very hard thing to take on. And there's been quite a lot of pushback against yeah. that in some mm -hmm. quarters. And mm -hmm. a belonging always that technology will save us. 
about mm-hmm. life doesn't have to change because the planes are magically going to fly on vegetable oil, <laughs> regardless mm-hmm. of how many hectares of land that might take. So I think it's a difficult and complex complex problem because, of course, the moment you ask someone to think about reducing their emissions, you are into the systemic issues, which mean that that's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, into the ecological issues. You know, when you pull on one thing in the universe, it's hitched to everything else, as John Muir said. Let me let me just add one more point and then I'll turn it over to Panu. But just the, we don't have time to get deeply into the grief and loss work. But I think for the listeners, it seems to me that William... What what was what was really helpful, Ro, that you did was bring in the work of William Warden, who was a re- one of the researchers who studied grief, grief that happens when something we value is lost. Not not necessarily grief about our own death, but grief, say, if a parent loses a child, or and and the stages of grief that happen for people uh, regarding that, and this whole journey of grief where we kind of are broken from life and have to eventually kind of reinvest our energy back into life after we process and work through the loss and then all the detours that people can get get into as that happens we idealize what was lost we get stuck and don't want to move forward or we um, have severe you know emotional blocks or etc cetera, etc cetera. but it seems to me that that bringing in that particular therapeutic insight to the carbon area was really helpful because previously people were thinking about their own their own death and kind of Kubler-Ross kind of denial, anger, bargaining, but the, the warden stuff I thought was more accurate. That's 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 a, that, that's a summary, but that's a fair statement, I think, about the grief process. I think, yeah. I think that's right. And I think mm-hmm. that the kinds of climate grief that I've encountered since I wrote that paper have changed. Because at that time, I was thinking a lot about people's grief in letting go of the kind of life they'd become used to. Because when you look at any any plans for how life might be, whether it's the UK government's one, they all, or somebody else's, they all involve changes in the way that we live. Uh, but what I encounter amongst young people particularly now is a very, very acute sense of disorientation a very acute sense of the world coming apart feels to me much more like the experience of a child losing a parent. There's that same Mm. sense of being completely unmoored from life, of feeling that this, this can't have happened, this is impossible, this can't be true, at the same time at which you know that this is true. You know that mum or dad is not coming back. But what you feel is the loss of everything around you that makes life life safe, that makes it feel as if life has got some chance of going on being, and that you have some chance of going on being. And I think that kind of sense of being completely polaxed is something that has arrived in my experience in the last five years or so. I think earlier people were certainly overthrown by what was happening but it was a think of much more rapid return to that sense of well i need to reorient i need to do something i need to think about it i need to 
find a way through this. And I, I do think that's harder now for people. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I've noticed similar things, especially in my work in fin- Finland. And it's a kind of existential crisis. Uh, it goes to the level of people's systems of meaning, you know, the sort of foundations of who who they feel and think that they are and how they relate with the world. And some of the very fundamental basic assumptions and beliefs become challenged. And that's, of course, uh, a great chance for traumatic grief and a complex combination of existential issues grappling with various meanings in in life and then uh, experiencing various kinds of changes and losses and having to function at your everyday life at the same same time this is very closely related to some of the recent work i've been doing in uh, relation to various theories of give, grief and bereavement but i'm not going to the deta- details uh, now but that's something that i very much valued in your work work role that you have kept always both this knowledge of where people are and then uh, awareness of the great complexity of what is what is happening and i think that's one part of the appeal of the work of you and colleagues to also the environmental uh, ac- activist people because then they start thinking that hmm, this might offer solutions uh, to those dilemmas that why why are people not giving up driving with their own vehicles for example to use an example mm-hmm. uh, from your 2009 nine article and also the granularity about emotions which is something we have often talked about at this podcast and which is very close to us both or us three, I would, I, I would dare, dare to say. And I remember reading your 2013 article uh, from this great book, Engaging with Climate Change. And that led me forward in thinking about shame and guilt also in relation to ecological issues. So just wanting to bring those links to our one of our previous episodes where we discuss guilt, not so much shame. How do you feel about the reception of your work now in the 2010s and early 2020s? Have you, have you seen more more advances and or new you know obstacles arising? I know that life is a complex mix of different kinds of developments, but just wanting to ask about that. How's it been lately about the reception? I think. The whole field of climate psychology has developed hugely in the period since I was first so disappointed in my colleagues. I mean, I since acquired many, many wonderful colleagues and co-workers like, like yourselves who are thinking and working on these issues, who are making all kinds of wonderful advances in understanding in complex ways these interrelationships between these wicked systems and our Mm -hmm. personal experiences of them. That's been a huge change. There are so many more people writing, working, and talking about these things now. Yeah, so you're less less alone, I guess we could say, more more like-minded people, and I think that's one of the consolations of this this time is that it is 
Ro, you said five years ago or so, you know, I think there was, we'll probably have to invent a name for it, but there was a societal tipping point here a few years ago, I think in most places around the world where climate went from a special interest kind of environmental issue to a public issue. I know in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. where I live, it was with the with the fires and the smoke and the droughts. And so generally the natural disasters have, have, have brought that into people. So there is a whole new audience clamoring for these this kind of help. One of the terms you used, Ro, that I liked in your in the article, we'll, which we'll link in our, uh, some of the materials we'll link in our show notes. Uh, when I'm training therapists, I'm actively training therapists who are, you know, trying to get schooled up into, into all these into all this work and, you know, talking about the special place that therapy holds for people. Uh, it's a place, and use a military metaphor where we can kind of, or a sports metaphor to get off the playing field or get off the battlefield and take our armor off for a little bit and sort of see what we're doing and collect ourselves. And you call that the, the hinterland. Um, so it sounds like that's a, a concept that you're, you're, you're all aware of uh, in your group as well. And I think that's, I think it's helpful for people to find their place to, to take off the armor and sort of be with this. Um, do you want to say anything more about that? What you think about that space is, or what what, what makes a good space like that? For me personally, that space has come with the group I'm part of here in Cambridge. We call ourselves Cambridge Climate Therapists. And in my, in our early conversations, one of the things we talked about was this idea of the hinterland, which was the place back from the action where it was possible to think and to reflect. And so it's a place where you can feel slowly and you can feel with the assistance of thought rather than being in action where your reactions are instant. You, you do what seems intuitively for the moment. But being able to be in that space where we're in the hinterland, I feel that as people with psychological skills, we're better placed to be useful to those who are taking often very difficult actions, getting burnt out, suffering traumas from political involvement, and maybe generally not being able to stop enough to examine what's going on and often finding that within the organisations they're part of that the distress is being projected in very difficult and painful ways. But I think in order to be able to help people with that, you do have to be this step back. You have to be in this hinterland where you are acting much more slowly, mm-hmm. reflectively, carefully. Yes, thanks Thanks for sharing all that and raising up this importance of also a kind of rhythm, you know, rhythm of engagement and with withdrawal. And I've been working with some people who organize periods of silence as a way of withdrawal. So that's that's one, one way related to that. And 
but I know that you've been developing lately this new method based on the influential old work around so-called carbon conversations. We'll again put links on the podcast website and there was a very good facilitator's guide also for those conver- conversations. But w- would you like to say something about this new development? It seems to that to connect with many of the themes you were describing. Well, just a sentence about the old Carbon Conversations project. This was something which uh, I started back in 2006, 2007, and we ran small groups for people who were concerned about climate issues and who wanted to look at how to reduce their impact. And these, to our surprise, took off and became very popular in all kinds of places. They were, they were facilitated by volunteers. Uh, who we gave some very rudimentary training to. Anyway, this project ran for quite a long time. It was a psychologically-based project. And to me, there was a point where I felt it had run its course and um, I wanted to move on from it. And then about three years ago, no, a year ago, um, Rebecca Nestor, who was um, part of the Climate Psychology Alliance here in the in the UK and an old facilitator of Carbon Conversations got in touch with me and we had this conversation about what would a group-based activity for the 2020s look like? What would it be? And that was the beginning of a new project where both of us felt very strongly that People need to be located collectively when they respond to the climate crisis. They need to be working with others. This could be in their own community, this could be politically, this could be at work, but they need connection. And what we were seeing was that some of the people who were getting involved in climate work were moving very rapidly into action and were not really being able to process what was happening to them. We were also seeing people of my own generation and people of the generations in between suffering from burnout, suffering from feelings of despair and disappointment, feelings of exhaustion, that they had been involved in um, these issues for so long, and so much of it seemed like you were trying to hold back a tide that you couldn't stop. So we felt that there were these huge emotional issues which were impeding and affecting people's ability to engage in fruitful action. Mm. And so we began to plan for a kind of new carbon conversations. And these groups are now coming to fruition with run a pilot group and we're going to publish the materials we hope within the next two or three months so that other people who are skilled in facilitation can use them and adapt them to their own purposes but in the actual um framework for this work is very much psychosocial it's very much systemic in the way that we look at things But there are basically three chunks of material in the 10 meetings or the 10 sessions that make up living with the climate crisis. And so the first part is uh, given over to talking about the experience 
of living with the climate crisis, waking up to it, having lived with it for decades, being consumed by it, whatever that happens to be. And in that, we've looked at and will be using um, a method which you may be familiar with, which is David Denborough and uh, Nasele Kube's Tree of Life, which they developed for working with uh, trauma, but which we are using in a much more general sense. It's a storytelling method, and mm -hmm. it's a method which builds strengths. It doesn't focus on the trauma, it focuses on what you have within you that you can bring into a collective situation, and it has very much behind it the idea of the need to look at the collective origins of distress in the political and social systems mm -hmm. and to become able to speak richly and deeply with a thick narrative about about them mm -hmm. so we've drawn on that in our approach to helping people understand what's happening to them and that makes up about a third of what we do we then look a lot at we look at communication which is often something which campaigners struggle with. Mm -hmm. um, we use partly we use therapeutic understandings of what happens when you get into really difficult conversations with your family and your friends and your colleagues, and partly we draw on Marshall Gantz's public narrative work in that. Mm -hmm. And finally, we look at the systems that people are part of and where they want to take action, how to move towards action. We look at the the skills that people have. We look at how to reflect on what you're doing. So again, we're drawing from a lot of different areas of psychological understanding in creating this. But overarching is this kind of metaphor that we have, or which we use of um, the climate movement as an ecosystem, and an ecosystem where you need to find your place. The idea that there's a place for everybody in it, but you have to find it. And at the moment, you know, you may be living in a desert, you know, there may be nothing much around you, or you may find yourself in a monoculture, or you may, um, you, know, you may be one of the old trees that just needs to kind of keel over and nourish the new growth. Hmm. But how I feel at the moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, this is beautiful, Ro. We've got, a, you know, we'll take about, you know, five more minutes and wrap wrap up our, our talk today there's so many things i mean again bringing in the listeners you know i've i've been involved in this for a long time panu has but you know I, I learn things new every day with this that's that's another important thing to keep in mind is that we're always learning i'm some of the things that rose said today touch me deeply um i mean this idea of just a place to feel slowly is such a great term now i know panu would get that because that kind of comes really out of Panu's, I think, style. But for me, that's something I'm pretty concrete, right? So I get these things in my head. Oh, feel slowly. That's helpful for me because most of us are feeling fast. Um, and then, I mean, obviously, the change, one of the changes from the carbon conversations, we, I almost said carbon confrontations, right? A little Freudian slip. So, uh, you know, it was like, you know, we were getting confronted, but now, you know, we really need to bolster people more. Um, this, I, this, this row, when you said like a child losing a parent, that gave me chills. Uh, 
really hit me emotionally um, because that is really how people are feeling in a, in, a, in a situation like that. It's a, just a different emotional game. So I really do appreciate this. Um, so anyway, I'm learning and I think, you know, listeners, you know, we're always learning through this, but Anna, what are you, what are you thinking of here as we wrap up? It's such a great conversation. Yeah, I'm very, very grateful that we've had a chance to engage in, in, in this um, this new uh, revised method of living with the climate crisis. Uh, sounds very, very good to, to me. Uh, and of course, we've talked about this with, with Row over, over, over Zoom some, sometime, and there, there's are many shared interests, but I uh, have, haven't heard about it at this length, so I'm very... Uh, very glad to glad to hear this, and I think that for all the listeners, also this metaphor of ecosystem, also in relation to climate and environmental matters, is very important, and that's a message to be been trying to deliver also with Thomas. That you know that there is a place for everyone here, here, and it may feel sometimes that what's the what's the use of anything that I do, and people's circumstances can be very different. We have various amounts of resources and possibilities, and so on uh, but there's something for 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 every everyone even if it's uh, you know close close circles and advancing caring in in this increasingly chaotic world that's a very fundamental important task so i'm being very very grateful for this conversation and as thomas said we regrettably have to wrap up quite soon it would be interesting to continue this for a for a long time but uh, could i ask you rose still that you've mentioned already some of these but what are some of things that give you resources and strengths your yourself in these times you mentioned the companionship of cambridge therapists and so but do you want to dwell a bit on that the slow thinking i do i do with my colleagues in Cambridge climate therapists. Mm-hmm. I have a tendency to to rush, to burn out, to respond instantly. So that group slows me down and that's very important to me. Mm-hmm. I also rely on my husband who's been also been my partner on a lot of this journey um, for over 40 years now. And the rest of my family, some of whom are in Wales, um, where we go quite often to the little town where they live, the rural town where they live, mm-hmm. um, where climate change feels a little bit further away sometimes, mm-hmm. particularly this summer when in the east of England it was drought, mm-hmm. constant drought. Mm-hmm. And it's connection with people, really, that sustains me. Love, perhaps. At the end of it, it's love. Yeah, it is true. So much of this work, um, so much of the what I've found in my therapeutic work is isolation is such a is is really the to- the toxic piece in this. We can bear we can bear things when we're bearing it together. So the isolation piece um, for all of us to keep in mind. Um, 
Yeah, so we're going to wrap up today. Um, we, again, got into the emotional side and the deep, slow feeling and slow thinking. So this is good for our listeners to hear. Um, and then to bring back to reality at the very end, even though it, it feels like the parent is, is being lost, we have to remember that there are a lot of parents out there doing good work. Um, uh, we'll put a link into a guide to decarbonization that the American journalist Ezra Klein helped uh, put out recently. There are so many people doing so many interesting, positive, very smart things regarding decarbonization re in the real sense, not, not the personal carbon footprint, but in the societal change, a whole structural societal change. So we don't want to lose those people. It does, it does them a disservice. Our imagination makes us think that uh, there are no adults and parents out there but that's not true. We know that we are our, we are the adults ourselves, and also there are very gifted people working in the UK and in the US. Um, so we want to just shout out to them as well. Oh, thank you so much, Ro. It's been really a pleasure to chat with you. May I say one last word, which is just that I think when we think about grief, we have to remember that there is a place the other side of it. And I think that's what you're talking about here, is the place, the other side of grief. You never forget the person you lost. Your life is forever changed. But there's a place on the other side where life has meaning and where life is worth living. And that's where we want people to get to, through connection and love. Exactly. Relearning the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, relearning the world, the other side of grief our loss and our reconnecting with life. And so we're, we're playing on that knife edge here uh, today with this episode. But thanks again. Uh, Ro, what are you going to do with the rest of your evening? Oh, I'm going to make food and I'm going to chat to my husband mm -hmm. and I'm going to chill. Very good. So sounds ex excellent. My sons will finish their choir rehearsal quite soon. Luckily, they still like to do that. They sometimes are tired to go into the practice, but they still like, like the things. So I'm going to take them home from the center room of the town and uh, amidst the darkening evening in Helsinki. But warm thanks, especially for to you, Rowan, and, and to Thomas and all the listeners. Do take care. Yes. And I need to get my day started here uh, beyond after this great start and do work on my on all the things we've talked about today. I'm going to be focusing on including uh, checking with my therapy group, my therapists out there in the world. So we'll definitely talk about my, my insights from today with the therapists and spread this love around. All right. You all take care. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's been a pleasure. Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.